Our reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, and may be found in the Church Bibles on 486. Nehemiah inspects Jerusalem's walls. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except for the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dun gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, and there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had, not, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set, it, set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the Tower of Haranel, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. Thanks be to God for his word. And I don't know what you feel when you see sites like these that are just about to come up on the screen, churches that have uh, closed down. Uh, or been converted into all sorts of things, spas, nightclubs, houses. I think they're just coming. Um, I mean, it makes me, in many ways, feel quite depressed. Because, although at the end of the day these are really just buildings, I think it's more what they represent. At one stage, there would have been a worshipping Christian community meeting there. And you have to ask yourself, what was it that caused that church to close down? Was it just that the numbers dwindled to the extent that it was no longer sufficient? Did the church sort of somehow lose its way? Those would be 
Some of the thoughts I'm sure that would have gone through Nehemiah's head as he rode his horse around the walls of Jerusalem at night time. How did it all come to this? But Nehemiah was not one to become depressed and uh, discouraged because God had given him a vision, a vision to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the people of God. And so he looked at it with a very different eye. As we did a few years ago when we decided to plant a new Baptist church in Tame to restore the gospel witness that was once there. And as we look at how Nehemiah went about this, though, there are lessons that we can learn about leadership, but there are also lessons that we can learn about teamwork and how we all work together for his glory. Just first, for those who weren't here last week, a quick recap on where we've got to. Nehemiah was one of the uh, Jewish exiles living in Susa in Persia around the mid-5th century BC. He himself happened to be in a, quite a privileged position as a Jew in exile. He was cupbearer to the king of Persia himself. However, when his brother and others from Judah arrive in Susa and tell him about what is going on in Jerusalem, he's moved with compassion. He mourns, he fasts, and he prays. And after four months of prayer, God gives him the courage to go before the king of Persia and ask him, can he go back to his homeland and restore the people there? And so he sets off on his long journey. The king miraculously grants his request. And as we heard last week, it was because the gracious hand of the Lord was upon him. We pick up the story this morning in uh, verse 11 of chapter 2 as Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. And what is the first thing he does? Well, not surprising, he has a rest. He may not have jet lag, but um, after a gruelling journey of four months or so, he's going to be pretty exhausted. And we all know when we're tired, we don't function properly, we can't think clearly. And so the first thing he does is rest. He recharges his batteries. And then he starts to implement the vision that God has given him. Last week we saw how prayer starts with the heart that God puts on our heart, a compassion for people. He prompts us to pray for them. We've also seen how God has continually guided and directed Nehemiah. The more time he's spent with God, the more aware, the more sensitive he is to God's direction and guidance. And it's not just a concern that God puts on his heart. He prompts him to do something about it. Look at verse 12 here of chapter 2. It says here that, I had not told anyone at this stage what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. God had put a, something in his heart to do for Jerusalem. He'd given them a vision for Jerusalem. He won't have told him at this stage exactly what he should do, how he should carry it out, but he's given him wisdom. And he needs now to use that wisdom to implement a strategy, to implement the, the, the vision. And in what ways do we see that wisdom in action as we read through these verses here in, in Nehemiah? Well, the first thing we see is that Nehemiah doesn't just jump in. He needs to know how bad the situation, what the dangers are, what the challenges are. He examines the situation. So what Chris Mace has been doing is he's been taking over the lead on the building project. He's been examining the, the situation, looking at the background to the project, how we've got to this stage, what are the, the risks going forward, what are the uh, CSFs, as you would call them, the critical success factors for you guys in business. I'm sure you'll know that. 
It's what Grant, our new youth and children's pastor, has been doing as he's arrived here. He's been looking at the situation. How does the youth and children's work operate here? Are there changes that need to be made? But first we have to look at the situation. At this stage, Nehemiah doesn't really know who he can trust. And it says, therefore, we set out with only a few men, those he knows well, may even have been those he came um, from Persia with. And he goes at night. Doesn't want to run the risk of running into opposition, doesn't want to run the risk of causing speculation. And so it says in verse 16, have a look there, it says, the officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing. Because as yet, I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. He wants to wait until the right moment. But having examined the, uh, the situation, what he then does is identify the problem and explains to them the solution. Now, it's not particularly difficult to work out, you might say. Have a look at verse 17, what he says. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now, you might say it didn't take a sort of rocket scientist to work that one out. But it will take a work of grace for the people to accept the problem and the Nehemiah is the person to help them achieve the solution. Because as we said last week, the disgrace here, as this says, is a spiritual disgrace. The ruined walls represent a spiritually ruined people. But the interesting thing is that Nehemiah doesn't just come along here and say, look at the mess you guys have got yourselves into. Just look at it. But hey, guess what? How lucky you are because I'm here to sort it out. Then he identifies himself with the people. He says, you see the trouble that we are in. He's saying, your problem is my problem. But together, we can sort it out. We can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is Bob the Builder, isn't he? Can we fix it? And you hear the people say, yes, we can. Now, you may say, well, how does rebuilding a wall actually fix a spiritual problem? Well, the rebuilding of the walls here is not just a physical thing. It's, it represents a turning back to God. It's a visual demonstration, but they have put their trust in God again. It's a simple problem, and it's a simple solution. And in many ways, the Christian message is just the same. The problem is that we have all turned away from God. We have all gone our own way. And the solution is to turn back to God, what the Bible calls repentance, to believe, to put our trust in Jesus Christ as the one who can make us right with God. But just because the problem and the solution are simple doesn't mean that people will accept them. Often they think, well, maybe it is just too hard for me to do. I can't turn back to God. That's just too difficult for me. And so what does Nehemiah do here? Well, he reassures them of the grace of God. He's saying you don't have to rely on your own strength. Look at verse 18. He says, I told them also about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. This is not just him telling them about God's grace in theory. He tells them how he has experienced it for himself. You'll probably have told them the whole story of how uh, he prayed, of how he went before the king, and how incredibly the king granted his request. 
Personal testimony is a, is a powerful thing, isn't it? Because it's no longer then a, an intellectual debate. It's about real lives being changed. And testimony is not just about how we came to faith in the first place. It's how God continues to work in our lives. We're hearing from David and Sue about how God is working for them in the country where God has placed them. It gives us that, that wider perspective of God. It fills us with confidence in his power. That he's not just working here in Long Crendon, he's working throughout the world. The psalmist writes in uh, Psalm 66, he says, Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. And I wonder sometimes how much we speak in those terms. You know, when things are going well for us, when something good does happen to us, do we attribute it to the Lord or do we sort of just talk about it in a, in a way it could just be, well, good luck, could just be fate? If we believe all things come from him, then we should praise them, him for them. God is good. And with our building project, I believe that it was the Lord's hand that enabled us to get the planning approval. I believe it was the Lord who removed the animosity of the neighbours on that day. I believe it was the Lord who raised Chris up at this particular time to take over the project, to bring a whole new sense of energy and skill set, perspective. God is good. As Nehemiah said, the gracious hand of our God is upon us. And let's recognise that that is where it comes from. Also, having examined the situation, having identified the problem and the solution, having reassured the people of the grace of God at work here, how do the people respond? Well, the answer in verse 17 there is arousing, let us start rebuilding. Let us start rebuilding. What are we waiting for? So it says in verse 18, so they began this good work. They've seen that this is the way forward and they've committed themselves to it. They acknowledge the uh, spiritual situation they are in. They know they need to do something about it. Now, unfortunately, not everybody's happy about it and we will see next week about how Nehemiah deals with opposition. But the majority there are shouting together, let us start rebuilding. And as we will see, this is not just... um, let us start rebuilding, but when I say let us start rebuilding, what I really mean is let all those people over there start rebuilding because I'm a bit too busy with everything else going on. This is let us start rebuilding together. Everybody here has a role to play. As we come on to our our second point this morning, it's teamwork. Now there's a picture coming up here of um, that uh, people recognise, I think if you're a rugby fan from last year's World Cup, England players, hands on hips, looking down at the ground. Now, there have been a lot of post-mortems about the cause of uh, England's dismal performance in the World Cup last year. Drunken behaviour, more interested in, in money than the playing for one's country. Poor management, dodgy ball, etc., etc. But I think what most people would agree with, that what was really lacking was unity. Were they really playing as a team, did they really want to win the World Cup? Were they really prepared to work hard for that goal? I hate to say it, but the Welsh team, on the other hand, I think, admitted a clear decisiveness. There was a team there who wanted to win. Didn't quite make it, but you know. 
But what are the key characteristics from this passage that we learn about teamwork? Well, I think the first one is respect for every individual. Let me just ask you a question here. If you were to read chapter 3 on your own, um, you're working your way through Nehemiah on your own, you come to chapter 3, how long would it take you? Would you start at the beginning and read right through? Or would you maybe read the first three verses and say, okay, I get the idea, it's basically a lot of people with unpronounceable names building a wall. Let's skip on to chapter 4. That's much more exciting there. We've got opposition. Let's see what goes on there. Because let's face it, we're all tempted to do that, aren't we? Reading lists of names can be quite dull. Unless you're Maureen Lipman, who apparently entertained an audience for half an hour reading a telephone directory. But if we were tempted to skip over this chapter, we would miss a lot of the point of this. Because as we read it, what comes across is a whole load of different people who are involved. Where they all come from, all over Judah, not just the city of Jerusalem, they come from all over. They're different professions. We have priests here, we have goldsmiths, perfume makers, local rulers, temple servants. Different social positions, rulers and servants working together. Different family relationships, we have sons, we have daughters. Different parts of the wall they work on. And they're different names. The fact that Nehemiah thought it so important to write all this down shows the interest that he had in each one of them, showed how much he valued each one of them. He appreciated every effort. Look at verse 13 there. He, uh, <coughs> excuse me, he commends um, Hanan and the residents of uh, Zenoah for repairing the valley gate. And also, they repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the Dungate. Great achievement. The Dungate, on the other hand, verse 14, was just repaired by, by one man, Malkiah. Don't know why he was on his own. Maybe the name of the gate had something to do with it. But um, This is not a list of the top ten builders. This is not saying um, these are the guys who really did good effort. This is acknowledging everybody's efforts, however large, however small. And interestingly enough, it's also not so much people here using the gifts that God has given them in a certain way. Because let's face it, you know, there wouldn't be much use for a perfume maker building a wall, would there really? Although unless they're working on the Dungate, maybe there's a certain need for that. But this is just everybody getting stuck in. <coughs> I don't know whether you've seen the film Witness, one of my Favourite films about um, uh, stars Harrison Ford and a young guy, a young little lad who witnesses a murder. And uh, Harrison Ford and him have to basically go and take refuge in an Amish community. Um, and there's this scene in that Amish community where the community needs to build a barn. And uh, they all come out, the whole community comes together. They're up there building away, hammering nails in, doing all sorts. And it's just perfect picture of teamwork, everybody mucking in. Anyway, it's a bit like our work parties, you know, apart from the fact that there were no chainsaws or, or no neighbours to upset. But um, it's everybody coming together. Some be more skilled than others, but everybody working together. And when you read through this, I think there's one key phrase, three word phrase, which keeps coming up. I don't know whether you can spot it. The most common three word phrase, if you look down in verses 17 to 19, it crops up a lot of times. Anybody can see it? Three words. 
next to him. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites. Next to him, the repairs were made by their countrymen. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua. Next to him, Barak, and so on and so on. This is a whole army of workers working alongside each other, supporting, encouraging each other. And what is it that attracts this sense of togetherness, of wanting to work alongside each other? Well, it's working together for a common goal. They all have a common goal. They need to get the walls rebuilt so that they will no longer be in disgrace, so that God will be glorified. Now, the problem with the scene from that scene from witnesses that um, it was a bit idealistic. You know, you say, well, where were the slouchers? You know, where were those who thought this work was too, was below them? Because in here we see there are those in verse 5, the nobles who wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. But they are the exception. The rest of the picture here is one of great unity, working for a common goal, the glory of God. And Psalm 33 sums it up when the psalmist says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. A common goal. But what you also pick up when you read through this chapter is that There's a huge sacrifice that many are prepared to make. We mentioned there were a lot of tradesmen involved. Now, if anybody here is self-employed, you will know that when you take time off to do something else, that you will suffer financially. And that's the same here. Except they're probably closer to the the bread line. But here are merchants, here are goldsmiths, perfume makers, all taking time out to build this wall. Not everybody lived in Jerusalem. Yes, there will be some who had more incentive to rebuild. Those, it says, who were working on the bit outside their house. Of course they wanted to get that done. They wanted a better view as they looked out the window. But there were others who came from outlying villages who wouldn't have benefited themselves from the walls physically being rebuilt. They weren't just building for their lifetime. The walls would have remained much longer than they would have been around for. And it's so easy, I think, sometimes for our passion for something to be determined by how much benefit we personally will receive. As we think about the building project, you know, inevitably people's level of enthusiasm will be influenced by how much they will benefit from it personally. You know, if you are like Jill Sam trying to run an art group and this week you've got drips coming through the ceiling, you know, you see the needs. If you're Helen Walker in the office shivering around the little portable fire there, having to tell people from Wycliffe, no, I'm afraid you can't come and use the building because we've already got the toy box, the day centre and connect on. We haven't got that flexibility. If you're one of the young children this morning at the back there, squashed into a room, then of course you see the need. If you're a Hannah trying to get the old, all the elderly people from the contact lunch into the toilets and out into the church, you see the need. But for the people of Judah, their personal gain was not an issue. It was what would most glorify God. And that is the same for us. How do we contribute to something that may not benefit us personally, but is for the glory of God, that will help the work of the gospel? Some ask the question, what is the benefit to us of being part of the FIC? But I'd say to you, that is the wrong question to ask. The question is, What benefit can we bring to God's work 
by being involved in the FIC. That's why we pray for the work of our missionaries you know, throughout the world. We may not see their work firsthand, but how encouraging it is to hear reports of what's going on, how God is blessing that work, the work of the gospel, growing because of our prayers. It's wonderful now also that missionaries are praying for us. They may not see what's going on here, but it's great to, to receive those, those emails. I had a lovely email from Alice Davis in the US before our planning application came before the committee. I hope she won't mind me reading it out, but um, she's not here to complain. So um, this, is, uh, <coughs> this is what she said. She said, uh, Dear Neil, having now just finished reading for a second time the information you sent around in preparation for Thursday's meeting with the ABDC's planning committee, and I'm praying in great anticipation. It's been a very resounding reminder to me that patience and skilled reasoning and humility are essentials for our Lord to be able to help us weather the rough spots in the road he has given us to walk. It's been exciting to me, sadly, from afar, to watch how our Lord takes the good plans that we make and moulds them into his best, even though it seems expensive time-wise as well as in other wises. And who knows what all he is planning for the neighbours through all of this too. Don't weaken, even if you can't take a day off for Thanksgiving this week. With my prayers, Alice Davis. It's great, great encouragement to receive emails like that from somebody well away from the work. As we conclude then, we are all individually valued by God. Our relationship with him is a personal relationship. But we're not just interested in the ministry that we personally are involved in. We're privileged to be a part of a people, a team, spread throughout the world. We're able to provide mutual support, mutual encouragement, because we share that same common purpose We want to give God the glory to his name. We want to see the gospel spread. And it's only by his grace that we can serve him effectively. Let me finish with the words of Paul to the church in Philippi, which some, I think, it up very well. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel.